I want you to imagine with me that we have a time machine. Say Dave Norlander and Stan Eklund put their genius together and discovered the flex capacitor or whatever and created a time machine. It's not that hard to imagine that happening, really. But imagine out of all the uses one could have with the time machine, we decided to use it in this way. We decided to travel back in time to the first century. We decided to kidnap a Roman citizen from the first century and bring him, we'll call him Claudius, back with us to, to here in our, pla- our place in Los Altos in North America. Now, more than Claudius being really confused about North America and, you know, the idea of a new continent, um, and, you know, besides him being really entertained by the cars and the dress and the technology, I wonder if the thing that would most strike Claudius, if we brought him right here, kind of to our church, would be the fact that adorning our place of worship was a cross. And that people had necklaces with little crosses on them. That in our place of worship, uh, the central vision is that of a cross. Now, Claudius would be thinking, man, I thought my Roman people were cruel. These people have crosses all over the place. See, the cross, for anybody living in the first century, was a cruel instrument of torture. Uh, Cicero, the great Roman orator, said this about the, about the cross, or about crucifixion. Crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He says, the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. As you know, crucifixion was a painful, torturous way to die. We actually get the word excruciating from that same root, crucifixion. This morning we get to, to meditate upon the fact, to reflect uh, on, on the story, on the truth, that Jesus, our king, was crucified. That he was a crucified king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, was the king on the cross. It's a marvelous work that transformed this symbol of torture and pain into an eternal sign of redemption. It's our invitation to wonder uh, about this, this mystery this morning. So I invite you to turn with me to our scripture reading for the morning, which is Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. You can find that on page 1046 in the Pew Bible. When they came to the place called the Skull, where they crucified him, Jesus, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, 
This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see you as our crucified king, to know the gravity of the fact that you are the crucified king. Help us to be your subjects. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, our king. Amen. Three things this morning from Jesus, uh, the crucified king. One, the fact that Jesus was crucified shows us that we don't know what God is like. Secondly, the fact that Jesus was crucified shows us what God is like. And then third, an invitation. The crucified king forgives us for not knowing what God is like. That's our roadmap for this morning. So starting off, the crucified king shows us that we don't know what God is like because the king was in our midst and we killed him. We mocked him, betrayed him, and denied him. I want to unpack together a little bit uh, how it was that Jesus found himself being murdered. Let's look at the historical circumstances. Uh, We're going to look in Luke uh, from our passage this morning and kind of trace out what it was that God Jesus killed. Every murder, as detectives even, de- even today know, uh, has a motive. So let's, let's try to uncover here what the motive was uh, behind Jesus being crucified. Well, it kind of started in, uh, really, when Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem. He began to drive out those who were selling uh, goods there, and he was teaching there. Now, the pre- chief priests, when they saw this, this can be found in Luke 19, uh, verses 47-48, The chief priests, the text reads, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him because of what he was doing in the temple. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Jesus goes in the temple, drives out the sellers, and this angers the authorities there. Now, not too long after that, uh, the, the tension gets escalated even more. Jesus tells uh, the people a parable, what we know as the parable of the tenants. This can be found in Luke chapter 20. Now, this parable is about uh, a landowner who's trying to collect a payment or fruit from the tenants of the vineyard in which he owns. They uh, are not respecting him. They're sending back the uh, owner's servants all beat up and bruised. So finally, the, the owner decides to send a son. And... The tenants say, if we kill him, we'll get 
our inheritance. Now, Jesus is telling this parable, and uh, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, they realize, oh, he's telling this about us, which angers them even more, and ironically, it sets in motion fulfillment of the parable. Continuing on to Luke 22, uh, at the festival of the unleavened bread called the Passover, uh, it was approaching, and we learn in this passage that they're starting to put the machinery in place here to, to arrest and eventually kill Jesus. The, the scripture reads that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. And this is the key here. Uh, I want you to pay attention to this. For they were afraid, not of Jesus, they were afraid of the people. Fear plays a role in all these things. And it's interesting, when they finally uh, arrest Jesus uh, in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, can't say that, Gethsemane, I have trouble with that word. Anyway, they arrest Jesus there, <laughs> in that place, <laughs> and, and they hand him over to Pilate. Now, it's interesting what their charges are as they hand him over to Pilate. They say, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. Now, we know he does not oppose payment of taxes to Caesar. He just tells a parable uh, just a few chapters before about giving Caesar what is Caesar's. So that's a trumped-up charge. Now, the other charge is that he claims to be Christ a king. Now, it's interesting. For Jews, this would not be a criminal offense to claim that you're a Messiah or king. Now, it was a criminal offense under Roman jurisdiction. So they're saying, this, isn't, this really shouldn't be a crime in our land, but we know you guys don't like this, so we're going to present this charge uh, of Jesus uh, to you. Now, again, fear was the common denominator in all these things. They were afraid of the people. Now, what were they afraid of? Well, I think there's two possibilities. I think they were afraid that Jesus, uh, as the crowds were hanging on every word he spoke, that he was kind of still in their, their attention, their thunder, that people were more willing to do what Jesus uh, was saying to do than, than what they were saying to do. They're, they fear losing authority and power. That could be a possibility. Another possibility, uh, I, I think, is that they feared the people gathering behind Jesus, and they feared that the Roman power would see this, really not like it, and punish all of them for it. In either case, again, it's fear. And what they fear ultimately is loss of authority. That their place, their status, their, um, their standing would be challenged and overthrown. So, uh, they have the Messiah in their midst. And they don't know it. They choose not to know it. They're not even asking the right questions. And they end up putting in motion Jesus' crucifixion. Now, it's not just the Jewish authorities who don't know what God's like. The, the Romans, Roman authorities, uh, as, as well, don't know what God is like. As Pilate collects Jesus and yeah, he kind of listens to the charges, he passes him first to Herod, because Jesus was actually under Herod's jurisdiction. Herod passes him back. 
Pilate's like, I don't see what the big deal is. This, this guy doesn't pose any threat. But he grants the crowd's request to crucify Jesus because they are begging for it. They're yelling for it. And for Pilate, kind of like the Jewish authorities in another way, his big concern is keeping the Pax Romana, the peace. He wants to do anything he can to keep people where they're at, under Roman authority. That means stomping down anybody who's creating too much of a fuss. If he sees that crucifying Jesus will kind of pacify these people, he'd be sure to do it, and he does. You also get the sense as you kind of, as you follow what the Roman sh- soldiers did, that, he, uh, that they really were kind of enjoying this. Again, they had the, the, the true king of the world in their midst, but they have no idea. They play games with them. They offer him sour wine. It's a sort of farce. Here you go, true king. Here's the finest wine. They put a sign over him. It says, this is the king of the Jews. Now, they did this as an insult to the Jews. They said, yeah, sure, this guy is king. Look at what happens to your king. It was, it was a, a, a way to, to mock the Jews. They don't know what's going on. Now do the Jewish authorities not know what God's like, or, or the Roman uh, authorities know what God's like as they partner in crucifying Jesus? His disciples, those closest to him, don't know what he's like. When the authorities come out to arrest him, they pick up a sword. Jesus is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's in Luke twenty-two fifty. Of course, we know one of his closest disciples betrays him. His closest disciple, you could argue, Peter, denies him. The king is in their midst, yet nobody gets it. They don't know what God's like. They crucify him. We don't know what God's like. I, I use the we intentionally here. It's easy to look back at history and say, how could they miss it? It was so obvious. All of the things he was saying and the things he was doing, I think we would have missed it too. God's so completely other from us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're mysterious, and they're beautiful, and they're full of love, yet we don't get it. At the same time, when we, again, look at the cross and and think of the crucifixion, uh, I like to think of it as a light. It shines light upon us. It shows us our our ignorance of God and what he's like. It shows us our sinfulness, that we would crucify our Savior. But at the same time, as it exposes us for what we are, it also illuminates God for what and who he is. (laughs) The thing about the cross is that Jesus chose this path, path, that this was the plan all along. This was God's art. This was God's story. This was his chosen method for revealing his grace and for saving mankind. Uh, Jesus predicted it. You can look in Luke 18, 31 through 33. This was the third time Jesus predicted his own death. It's, it's, it's clear he knows what's going on. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written 
by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew that this was the plan. This is the plan all along. It was the chosen plan, the way in which God would show his love and show his heart. It was the fulfillment of Scripture, as Jesus points out. Uh, as we read in the account of the crucifixion, we, we learn that they were casting lots for his clothing, which points to Psalm twenty-two eighteen, which reads, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. The fact that he was offered sour wine points to Psalm sixty-nine twenty-two. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And even the sneering of the onlookers at the cross points to Psalm 22, verses 7 through 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. All these threads are coming to fulfillment in the cross. This is God's chosen artwork to show us our sin, but also his heart. That he would take on our sin and say, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. God uses the power of irony. The ironic thing about uh, the king of the Jews sign is actually double irony. The, the, uh, d- double irony. The Romans put up, this is the king of the Jews, to be ironic. Say, so, yeah, this is what kingship looks like for you Jews. But the deeper irony, this was the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, this is the king of the world. And another irony is the, is the fact that the mockers say, save yourself and save us. What they didn't know, he was saving them at that very moment, allowing the possibility for salvation to come. Things aren't as they seem. The truth is not always what you expect. What it means that our God in Jesus Christ was crucified and is our king, it means that God reaches down to us. This is unique in world religions, to my understanding. It's not about our pursuit of God and our reaching up to him. It's about God reaching down to us. He lays down his life that we may have life. He, he's the king that fights for his subjects. It's not about the subjects fighting for their king. He lays down his own life. He's all in. He subjected himself to torture, to death, to show how in it he is for us and for all. Does this mean God is weak? Is this unpalatable for us? No, it shows how powerful his love is. It shows that true power is not demonstrated in coercion and force, but through love. Because God is love. God could have established a mightier empire than Rome ever was. But that's just, that's just not how he works. Relationships of love can't be coerced or forced. They have to be chosen. I love the, the writings of C.S. Lewis about this. In the Screwtape Letters, he, he writes this. You must have often wondered why the enemy, this is the demon speaking, so the enemy is actually God. You may, must have often wondered why God does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree 
He chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. The cross is to woo us. Show us there's a mightier force than might and force and power. Coercion's a deal breaker when it comes to relationships. There's a, a woman came by earlier this week uh, to complain to Carmen that she had been rejected for using the facility for like a Thanksgiving dinner that she wanted to throw. There's a number of reasons we couldn't provide this facility to her. But I'm in my office and I overhear, overhear this, this voice of this woman rising and rising to the point where she's yelling at poor Carmen, who's doing nothing, about how we should really give those facilities to her and that we must have had some scheme against her. Of course, this is kind of crazy stuff. So I go out there, and she starts yelling at me, and then Steve Wong goes out, she starts yelling at Steve. Hans Eric was, was at lunch, um, <laughs> luckily. And she's thinking, if I just push hard enough, I'll get my way. That's a strange logic. I'm going to yell at people, and then they're going to want to let me their facility. Of course, it didn't work. But we do that kind of stuff all the time. If we push hard enough, we'll get our way. It doesn't matter what the other person wants or desires. I'm going to force my way through. But God's a God that, use not, that uses non-coercive power. And Jesus shows us that. And the amazing thing about um, Christianity and its growth in the Roman Empire is that if of course, far outlasted the Roman Empire. Christianity grew exponentially without coercive power. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, demonstrates that there was likely six million Christians before Constantine uh, in the early 4th century made Christianity legal. Which means this, that there is a 40% growth rate per decade for Christianity. Which is amazing to think about. They didn't have any political power. It was illegal to be Christian, a 40% growth rate. Love always wins over coercive power. Thirdly, and finally, the invitation for us. The crucified king invites us to participate in his kingdom of love. He forgives us for not knowing what he's like. It's amazing. On the cross... Being crucified, Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. They knew exactly what they're doing in one sense. They knew how to kill people really well. But they didn't know. They just, their minds didn't have the ability to, to conceive of this God who was other. Actually, there's one person that did know, uh, did realize the truth. It's actually a criminal who's up there hanging with Jesus. He's the only one that saw. And Jesus grants him his kingdom. And, but, but for us, he, he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is Jesus' way. The cross is God reaching out to us, reaching down to us. Now the cross, we, there's 
there's so much we can say about the cross and about the atonement. There's so many uh, theories of atonement, and they're all good. There's so much depth and insight in all of them. It's the, the cross is like a jewel. There's so many facets to it, and we can never stop exploring. So I'm going to go ahead and do that this morning. We're going to be here for a couple, six more, more hours to explore the cross. No. Um, this morning in, in Luke, I want to emphasize how the invitation is actually to be a part of this king's kingdom. When Jesus was breaking bread and, and saying this was his body and pouring out uh, the cup and saying this, this was his, the covenant of his new blood, he said also this to his disciples, I confer upon you a kingdom. He was saying, I give you an invitation to live into this world that I'm creating. It's not going to be a, a kingdom that's about the temple. It's not going to be a kingdom that's based on an empire's power like Rome. It's a deeper kingdom than that. It's an eternal kingdom. It's the kingdom that's found through my body. Nothing, nothing will prevail against this kingdom. But he goes further. He says, I want you to be <laughs> subjects in this kingdom as, as you are my followers in this sort of kingdom. Follow me. Do it as I have done. He, he says this in Luke 22, 25 through 27. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. That's what the cross tells us. And we're invited to come alongside him to serve as well. Not to lord it over people. This is hard, though. This is hard. The, um, like the Jew, uh, Jewish authorities, the Romans, or, or even the disciples, we're prone to desire a king that's convenient for us. Uh, we're prone to desire a king that preserves our own comfort and security what we really want to do sometimes is make Jesus subject to us. My will be done as it is in my desires. I think we're prone to that. I know I'm prone to that. But that gets the relationship flipped. Jesus is king and we're his subjects. We serve as he served. Christian history shows that sometimes... We really acted like Caesar was our king rather than Jesus. You see images of the cross going before people into war or people using Christianity as a means to, to grab power. Couldn't be further from the, the example of the cross. Again, the cross tells, tells us that we're, we're so prone to, to mistake the character of God that God could be right in our midst and we'd miss it. But at the same time, it shows us that the truth about who God is is far better than we, can, we could even imagine. That even as we misunderstand him and actually try to kill him, that he's laying down his life for us, that we would have life. Who could have thought up the cross? Our poor friend Claudius is probably still perplexed as he's hanging out here. Well, all these crosses, I, don't, I just don't get it. I'll end with, with this little story. 
uh, I was watching a, a TV show uh, about like a search and rescue team in the back country of Maine. And there was this fellow who got lost. And they were, they were looking for him. This guy had like a GPS, you know. And he knew the country really well. But his batteries ran out on the GPS. Uh, so they spent hours trying to find the, this group of guys. And they, and they finally find him. And, and, you know, they're doing fine and stuff. But the search and rescue person goes, so what happened? And, and the people say, well, we forgot our compass. <laughs> A really rudimentary piece of, uh, of equipment. For us, the cross is like a compass. We can get complicated in our theology. We can, uh, we can go deep. We can do all sorts of things, but we need to have the cross as a compass because, again, it exposes us and reveals who God is. So that's, that's our invitation this morning is to keep the cross as your compass, to keep it before you. Let it reveal the truth of what's in you. Let it reveal the truth about what's in God. Let's pray. Lord, we're prone to wander. Prone to mistake circumstances. Lord, we need your cross to show the light. So I pray for whatever circumstance people are going through. They would know your loving, non-coercive heart. It longs to be in relationship of love. And longs for service to be the true power in the world. We pray through Christ our Lord, our King. Amen.